Welcome to the Stanford's Travel Podcast. Mapping your travels since 1853, Stanford's is the world-famous independent map and travel bookshop based in London's Covent Garden. Thank you for joining us on this little podcast adventure. Thank you, Stanford's, for hosting this event, and thank you, everyone, for being here. Um, my name is Nick Hunt. I'm the series editor for the second year of the John Murray Journeys series. I'm just going to tell you very briefly about what John Murray Journeys is and why we're here. So the series was set up in 2020 to celebrate John Murray's long and proud history of publishing exceptional travel writing and specifically to commemorate the anniversary of the death of the great British travel writer and John Murray author Patrick Lee Fermor with a reissue of his book, A Time of Gifts. And what we're trying to do is to pay tribute to this legacy of publishing exceptional travel and to reinvigorate that tradition. I've got an amazing job, uh, which is to seek out recommendations for amazing travel books to reissue for a, mo a modern readership, whether that is kind of acknowledged classics by well-known authors who have for some reason been kind of forgotten about or shelved or fallen out of print, or some quite obscure works of genius languishing on dusty shelves that were overlooked at the time and not given the attention they deserved. And I've got the additional fantastic job of commissioning new introductions from really exciting contemporary writers. Uh, this has been fantastic, especially over the pandemic period. It's hugely expanded and expanded and deepened my own reading. It's taken me to places and given me insights into cultures, histories and personalities that I would never have met otherwise. And obviously allowed me to travel all over the world and backwards through time. And we're very interested in looking beyond some of the more obvious backgrounds in travel writing um, and seeking particularly recommendations of women writers and writers of colour and writers writing in different languages. So it's fantastic that we've got one work in translation tonight and the translator of that work to say a few words about that book. Um, because obviously travel writing as a genre is as diverse and surprising and multifaceted as the landscapes and cultures that it takes us to. And our intention is for journeys to reflect that as much as possible. So last year, alongside Patrick Lee Fermor's A Time of Gifts, um, we published Freya Stark, Valley of the Assassins. We published Eddie L. Harris's Mississippi Solo, um, Everett Roos, A Vagabond for Beauty, which I think is a work that most people would never have come across. It's been great to bring that into the light. And Ella K. Mayotte's The Cruel Way, with excerpts from Anne-Marie Schwarzenbach's All the Roads Are Open. And already we're building up this really exciting kind of ecology of different writers that speak to each other through the ages and across different continents. And this year we are very excited to add to that list. So we have three exciting, extraordinary books to present to you tonight. Um, In a Land Far From Home, by Syed Mushtaba Ali, um, with an introduction by Taran and Khan, and translated by Naziz Afroz. We have a selection of the work of 
Isabel Eberhardt, um, introduced by William Atkins, and we've titled this new reissue of her work, Desert Soul. And the third book we've got for you is Through Kiva to Golden Samarkand by Ella Christie, which was both recommended to me and is introduced by Caroline Eden. And all three of these books have beautiful covers um, by La Studio, which is based in Istanbul, which seems very fitting because that was the destination that Patrick Lee Fermor walked to in 1934. So we've got a nice sense of circularity. And it's fantastic to be hosted by Stanford's because all three of the writers we've commissioned to write these introductions um, are winners of the Edward Stanford Travel Writing Awards in recent years. So it's great to bring all these people together. William Atkins for The Immeasurable World, Caroline Eden for Black Sea, and Taran Khan most recently for Shadow City. You're going to be hearing from each of these people as well as Nazis who translated In a Land Far From Home. And what I've asked everyone to do is just give a brief introduction to what the book is, why they love it, um, you know, why they wanted to either recommend and or introduce this book, and also to give a brief reading to give you a flavor of these three books that are extremely different, not only in geographical location, but in literary style and personality, um, and all are equally extraordinary. So without further ado, I'm going to invite Taran and Khan and Nazis Afroz to talk about In a Land Far From Home. Taran's going to say a bit about the book first. Nazis is going to say a bit about his translation. And then Taran is going to read a brief excerpt from the book. So welcome Taran and Nazis and over to you. Thank you so much, uh, Nick. And uh, hi everyone who is listening. Thank you for joining this uh, lovely event. And uh, I'm really pleased that Nazis is here as well because I think um, I'm so grateful to have found this book first through his translation and then to have been able to recommend it to Nick when he asked me if I could think of any travel writing um, from the region, South Asia. And I think Mushtabali was probably the first name that came to my mind because um, this is such a fresh, uh, it seems strange to be saying this about a book written, I mean, I mean that talks about the 1920s, but it's such a fresh look at Afghanistan, at Kabul. And um, I'll just talk a little bit about why I was drawn so strongly to this book as an Indian author, as an Indian woman who had the, you know, the good fortune of spending time in Kabul at, again, at a time of great transition. Um, this is the book, it's beautiful, as uh, everyone's mentioned, the covers are absolutely stunning. And um, I think it's important to remember that Mustafa Ali was quite an unusual character to, to begin with. He spoke some 12 or 14 languages, Nazis will have the entire number. He was this articulate, very well-educated, very young man setting out into the world, but he was also a subject of colonialism. He was moving from India that was actually subjected to colonial rule at that time, going to the nearest country that was free from colonialism. So this was a really, really, you know, uh, already a dense journey for him traveling by train from what was then Calcutta to Kabul. He was moving not only a huge physical distance, but he was also traveling an incredible temporal distance. 
But what he found in Afghanistan, what he found especially in Kabul, was this deep sense of connection. And I think this is the most remarkable thing about this book, is how deeply uh, Mushtaba Ali feels for this country. In fact, he even says that I have never considered Afghanistan a foreign country at one point, uh, even though the title of the book is in a land far from home, what you keep feeling throughout the book is a, is a sense of intimacy, is a sense of, of really deeply felt connection. I think this was probably the reason why when I read it, uh, I really wish that the book had been translated earlier because it seemed such a vital voice in the canon of writing on Afghanistan and also such a unique voice to have for a reason that's so deeply marked by the tradition of Western writers. Like you mentioned Ella Mayad, Anna-Marie Schwarzenbach, so many writers from the West right, have written about this region. And uh, you, know, you read those books and you get what you get from them. But it is also true that Mustafa Ali was able to move away from the approach of, of connecting to this city as someone you know, in, uh, inhabiting it with sense of distance or of being an outsider. He brings to it this sense of recognition, I think, of, and even though he is, you know, no less, uh, he is um, coloring it with his own fantasies of independence, of freedom, of being, uh, you know, his admiration for Afghans for being resisting the British colonial rule. All of that is there, but at the same time, he doesn't get into the big ideas. You know, he goes to the bazaar, he hangs out with people, he has meals with his friends. Uh, he's friends with a farmer in the house next to his, um, where he lives, and he's also friends with the king's brother. So this is a guy who's like all over the place and he's uh, having the time of his life. You know, you can, you can see that this, is, and he's writing about it many years later. After having returned from Kabul, he's writing about, if I'm not wrong, maybe 20 or maybe even later, 20 years after he's returned from uh, Kabul. So there really is the dual voice of the memoir here, a lot like Patrick Lefermore's memoirs. And I think, uh, to me, the most exciting thing about being able to talk about this book with Nick and to have it now issued with John Murray is that I feel Mushtaba Ali is truly one of the great travel writers of his time. And it's it's really um, a pleasure to see him take his rightful place, I think, in this canon. and. Again, to have uh, you know this vision of Kabul at a time which was so historically important, because Mushtawali is there in a time of great social ferment when King Amanullah is implementing all his modernizing um, measures, and things are changing almost overnight. And he's describing that for us. He's right there. There is a sense of freshness, the sense of um, empathy with what the people are going through. And then he lives through the revolution as well, which eventually overthrows King Amanullah. And it's so moving the way he describes the hardships that the city is going through. He himself goes through a lot of privation. And uh, it so happens that the end is at the, at the airfield, uh, at the evacuation of um, you know, foreigners out of Kabul. And it's a moment that really resonates. I think since we were, Nick and I were talking about this last year, it was a moment that you couldn't fail to connect to what happened in Afghanistan last year. And I think um, truly for me, the, the prescience of Mushtaba Ali's um, critique of uh, Afghanistan's uh, politics, of how it was placed in the geopolitics of the time, uh, it really struck home to me when, uh, when I reread these passages again last year. 
So I'm going to hand over to Nazis, who obviously has a, has a deep connection with this work, and I'm really grateful to him for having translated it into English, so non-Bengalis like me could also read this. Thank you, Taran, and thank you, everybody. Hi, everybody. Um, as Taran mentioned, Sayyid Mustafa Ali, um, he was a polyglot. He, he spoke about a dozen languages. And not only that, I mean, he was a great traveler. And in Bengali literature, in, in Bengali uh, society, uh, there is a great tradition of uh, travel writing. Um, Mustafa Ali's own guru, uh, Rabindranath Tagore, Asia's first Nobel laureate, he was a great traveler as well. And everywhere he went, from Iran to Russia to uh, um, all, over the, all over the world he traveled, to Argentina, he always wrote. He wrote letters. And those orders appeared. It's not only him, but even ordinary travelers who traveled and they, they wrote uh, their, their travelogues. So Bengal already had that, that culture of uh, writing about travels uh, that they did. Uh, so Mustafa Ali comes from that tradition. So in a way, this book, which was called in Bengali, it was called Deshe Bideshe, literally it would mean the home and abroad. Uh, and that is where actually he is crossing the line. Uh, he actually does not mean that Afghanistan is abroad for him. Afghanistan is also home for him. And that comes out so strongly um, in his book. Now, Mustafa Ali had phenomenal memory. Um, and uh, everybody knows about it. And he was, uh, at this book, let me talk about this book a little bit first. It, it, it had that cult status if, when it, it was published in 1948. So he spent a year and a half in Kabul. He went there as a young person. He was barely 23 years old. He went there to teach, to teach French and English. He was a direct disciple and student of Rabindranath Tagore when he set up the university which was actually a very interesting um, experiment of that time. Tagore was inviting scholars from all over the world, from China, from Japan, from the USA, from uh, Russia, from Iran, and he was setting up a, 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 a seat of learning, which was founded on universalism, which was founded on humanity. That is what he, he had imbibed and he with all of that training he goes to afghanistan and uh, afghanistan was not very far geographically it was just next to india but as uh, taran mentioned that people had practically no idea about afghanistan at that time which comes out uh, very very well in his book in the first part of the book and then he goes and he delves into it, into that society. He Not only the journey from, from Calcutta to Kabul, first by train to Peshawar and from there by bus to Kabul. Uh, and then, uh, so that itself is a great uh, um, narrative uh, of, of traveling of that time. At the same time, he is getting into the Afghan society. He is going to the bazaars. He is mixing with friends. He is making friends, colleagues. He is trying to understand how does that country work? All of that. So in a way, this is, is it, can we call it only a travelogue? Yes, it is a travelogue, but at the same time, it is his own understanding. He is trying to unpick what Afghan society was at that time. And he was trying to make a sense of the connection. And he keeps saying all along in the book, and the lost connection between India and Afghanistan, that is a lament. It's all through the book. 
and and we actually see that resonance today he says that the indians which is meaning the the nationalist idea of indians they look at afghanistan as a distant land and he is saying that is it because because buddhism had its its reach to the edges of afghanistan and and if in fact we have seen i'm sure i mean taran has also seen i have seen there are more uh relics and and artifacts from buddhist period from buddhist culture in afghanistan than we can find in india and so it was there and so he says that is it because the mo- why did we indians started looking at afghanistan as a foreign land a distant land is it because it became muslim country these are the questions and that is haunting us now right now in india in our political sphere so from that he writes it uh and and then after that he traveled he traveled extensively in europe he did his post doc in al azhar in cairo so so when he went there of course he knew few languages but later he writes this book 20 years later in 1947 so when he writes it he, he was writing it he had already acquired massive knowledge in philosophy in 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 uh, religion uh and uh, different cultures so they come into his writing and this was a unique language and it, that is possibly one of the reasons it was not translated but everybody when I, when i first started it everybody started saying that can it be translated because he had made so many multilingual multicultural references his prose was so unique it was it's very difficult sometimes even to penetrate his prose uh but i had to read it at least 100 times i first picked it up when i was a teenager and then every year i would read it it was such a, a favorite book of mine that i would read it at least couple of times every year or three times so over the over a span of 30 years i think i reached a point where i thought okay i could actually do the translation many of my afghan friends when i was visiting afghanistan from 2002 onwards and i was telling them stories of afghanistan of a time they did not know and they said how do you know about it i said oh there was this bengali writer and scholar who visited and lived in your country and they said we don't know and another importance of this book is that this is the only written account of that time when amanullah was actually trying to modernize afghanistan in the line of kamal atatürk in in turkey and shah pehlavi reza in in iran and this is the only written account written by not an afghan not an european but an indian and so that is why this book has uh, is so unique in in its all sense so i'll stop it here i think i've taken 5 minutes so nick back or or taran i think she is going to read a little bit yeah i can just carry on from there thank you nazis it's uh, for that really helpful bit of context and i agree with you that it's um really important to recognize him as an indian author at that time but i also feel that it's important to recognize him as a writer for the world because truly he's um the language he he uses the kind of uh, playfulness of it and the the like you said the kind of depth of knowledge he brings to something very it seems very domestic very trivial is really remarkable and i think it's uh, you know for instance one of my favorite parts in the book which i was tempted to read a bit from is his relationship with his uh, man servant abdur rahman and it's truly um the connection between these two very different men from two two completely different backgrounds abdur rahman is this massive giant who's from panjshir 
and Musawali is, is uh, you know, as he calls himself, a diminutive Bengali. Uh, but Musawali is able to listen to him describing the many kinds of snowfall that happens in Panjshir and reflect on what that means uh, for himself as a person who's homesick for his mother in the twilight of in the Bengali night. You know, I think uh, these are the kind of moments that make great travel writing. And I think Musawali really is a voice that uh, anyone in the world would connect to, um, especially, I think, now. Uh, so the part I, I, I did eventually pick is from his wandering in the bazaar, which connects with a lot of things you were talking about, Nazis. I'm going to condense it a bit for time, but Nick, please tell me if I go madly over my allotted time and I'll stop. Um, he started saying, Kabul's bazaar was poorer than that of Peshawar, but far more colorful. People of at least 25 nationalities did their trading here, keeping their sartorial and linguistic distinctions. Hazara, Uzbek, Kafiristani, Qazilbash, Mongol, Kurd, the traders of Kabul could easily tell who was from where, their businesses, method of trading, whether spendthrift or generous, from their dress, hat, pustin, and riding boots. They would walk the same streets happily, accepting this diversity. We Bengalis, while doing business with Marwaris or Punjabis, would never forget that they were non-Bengalis. After completing business, neither party invited the other to his house for a meal. But here, business and social contacts were intertwined. It was like a dream folk theatre. The original Kabulis were trying to buy and sell loudly, taking the names of God and all the prophets. The foreigners were trying to bargain, their merchandise strapped on the backs of donkeys or mules. The elderly trader of Bukhara would enter the shop with a slow gait, as if he wanted to have all his meals and spend the night there. His servants would follow him, carrying his tobacco and hookah. He too would have a mule load of carpets. You would try to leave, but the shopkeeper would not let you go. They might be doing good business with substantial profits, and since you did not have much work, you could also share a meal with them. Many young boys loitered on the streets. The elderly trader would tell one of them, Pacha, Ask the tea seller to send over some more tea. They would then unfold the carpets. So many colors, so many intricate patterns, so soft to touch. Apparently, the subject of carpets was a big, apparently, the study of carpets was a big subject. There was no end to it. Now I skip a bit to read about where the, where the, uh, the traders have a little bit of off time from all this activity. It contained life and was full of happiness. There was a big inn at the end of the bazaar, at the end of the day's work, and after the evening prayer, the traders would gather there to revitalize themselves. The Mongols would start dancing in a circle on the terrace with their rifles on their shoulders, wearing heavy riding boots and tossing their long hair. Mongol songs from across the Amudarya would reverberate around the hills of Kabul in tandem with clapping and the thumping of boots. They would lower their heads with the beat of the dance, their long hair falling over their faces. Then they would jump up, drawing lines in the air with their legs, thrusting out their chest, throwing back their heads, their hair falling across their green shirts. Sometimes they would bow, clapping in a slower tempo. Sometimes they would whirl with both hands high in the air. They would move in a circle and whirl all the time. As you took in the scene, you would notice that one Iranian, disregarding all the noise, was sitting in a corner with his sitar next to his ear, singing verses from Hafiz. A few listeners would gather around him with their eyes closed, as if intoxicated with the images of roses and bulbuls and the long separated lover. In another corner, some holy men and pilgrims were recounting stories from different countries. 
Mashhad and Karbala, Mecca and Medina. People were listening to them intently. The older men wondering when God would be kind to them and take them to Medina. Labo badam hai e Muhammad samhalo. Mere maula mujhe Medina bulalo. My last breath is nigh. Save me, O Muhammad. O Lord, take me to Medina. A poetry session was in progress in the room of the Pustin trader. A clean-shaven young poet with a hint of a moustache and coal in his eyes sat with his legs folded in front of a candle reading poetry from a parchment. Others were repeating each verse and expressing their appreciation by saying marhaba, afreen, well done, superb. Four Sikhs played three records repeatedly on an old gramophone. Hardi botlo, bhardi botlo, Punjabi botlo, lal botlo. Yellow bottles, filled bottles, Punjabi bottles, red bottles. Alas, bottles were forbidden in Kabul. And the main gathering was around the Tajiks of Kohistan. They were singing loudly in unison, breaking the walls and the stones, creating ripples in the air. Ay Fatujan Ima, Fatujan, Fatujan, Bartur Shom Kurban. The long drawn out Kurban was to keep up with the beat. It was no classical music, but their singing came from their hearts. Oh, my Fatujan, my love, for your sake, I shall die. In reply, Fatujan was saying skeptically, Chira Rafti, Hech Nagufti, Dur Hindustan, meaning, why then did you leave me for far Hindustan? When the answer to this question could not be found in the greatest of loved songs and poetries of the world of all ages, then you had to be quite stupid to expect it from the young, illiterate Tajik poet. Radha had the same question for Krishna when he left Braj to conquer Mathura. Even Krishna, the creator of the Gita that answered all human dilemmas, had no answer. The lover of Balkh was silent too. Thank you so much, Taran and Nazis. Um for that lovely it really yeah you really bring across that that like the depth and and subtlety and complexity of of his writing um it's a yeah it's it's an absolutely fantastic book and it kind of blows me away every time i i look at it again so thank you for making it possible for us to publish it today um that link with the marketplace actually kind of leads forward to to caroline eden talking about um about um about uh Ella Christie because that's something about the materiality and the richness of material culture but we'll come on to that in a minute um I'm going to introduce um William Atkins now we're going to leave the um South Asia and and go towards um North Africa so will tell us uh, about Desert Soul and Isabel Eberhardt uh, thank you, Nick. Um, uh, and thanks to um, to you and John Murray for, um, for for bringing together tonight's event, but also bringing together this wonderful uh, series of books. Um, I came to uh, Isabel Eberhardt's work um, probably about ten years ago when I was in the course of of trying to begin to think about writing a book about deserts, um, which eventually became this book I published a few years ago called The Immeasurable World. And what you're often looking for in those, those early days of, of thinking and reading and finding your way into a, into a new writing project is a kind of guide of some sort, a, a, a literary guide. Um, and not only one who is describing and introducing the place or the places that you're interested in, but also someone who can give you some sense of how you might begin to write about those places yourself um, in a way that honours the place, 
but equally importantly, honours its people. Um, so Desert Soul, this wonderful um, collection of writings, is like a lot of um, Eberhardt's writing, it's, it's kaleidoscopic. Um, it's a kind of work of shimmering fragments. It's actually a bit sand-like in its particularity and in, in the way that sand can pass through your hand, it sort of passes through the mind, passes through the vision. Um, so in that spirit, I'm, I'm going to talk a bit about um, Eberhardt's life and work, and then I'm going to read a bit, and then I'm going to talk a bit more about her work, and then I'm going to read a bit, um, but not for too long. Um, so I'll start by giving you a, a flavour of this, this wonderful um, uh, voice. I write that very few intellectuals think about claiming is the right to wonder, to vagabond, and yet vagabonding is liberation, and life on the open road is liberty. To one day courageously break all the fetters with which modern life and our weakness of heart have burdened our mere deeds under the pretext of liberty. To arm oneself with a symbolic staff and beggar's satchel. To leave. For whomever knows the value and to the delectable taste of solitary liberty, for one is free only when alone, the act of leaving is the most courageous and the most beautiful. To be alone, to have few needs, to be unknown, everywhere a foreigner and at home, and to walk grandly and solitarily in conquest of the world. Is not the sturdy vagabond sitting beside the road, contemplating the wide and open horizon before him, the absolute master of lands, waters, and even skies? So, we're going to jump from uh, Algeria, where that, that piece of writing is, is concerned with, across the Mediterranean to, uh, to France and to Aix-en-Provence, and to an archive, the archive of um, the uh, French possessions in Africa, in Aix-en-Provence, to a, a room and a vault in that room and a box in that vault, um, which the archivist today doesn't seem to be able to find, but which contains a number of papers diaries, journals, journalism, notebooks, uh, letters, and so on. And those papers um, are unusual in so far as they are speckled, stained with a kind of reddish watery stain, which is neither blood nor coffee. And we're gonna come back to that. Um, so those papers belong to um, Eberhardt, belong to one of the most extraordinary, um, inspiring radical figures, I think, in, in the history of, of travel writing. And one who, in some ways, was not a travel writer at all. She's one of the, one of the great dwellers, I think. Um, she was born in Geneva in uh, 1877 to Russian exiles, and she first visited the deserts uh, of Algeria and Tunisia in 1897 when she was about 20 with her mother. Um, and it cast a spell on her, as the desert tends to cast a spell uh, on those who visit it for the first time. Um, it's a place where all sorts of borders vanish. And so it was natural that Eberhardt, who was uh, so resistant to borders and barriers of all kinds, um, borders of uh, gender, borders of race, borders of social expectation and political borders, political um, divisions. Um, she and her mother both uh, adopted Islam. Um, Eberhardt famously, um, there was always of more interest somehow to Europeans um, than it ever was to her or um, those among whom he, she traveled, um, famously adopted uh, traditional male attire, partly as a, as a kind of practical measure, but partly, um, I guess it's an example of that um, uh, dislike, that repudiation of the idea of boundaries and borders. Um, 
And one thing that sometimes has been overlooked in writing about Eberhardt um, is that she was traveling in Algeria and North Africa at the height of the French colonial period. Um, and in the aftermath of French atrocities that had killed um, something like a million Algerians by, um, by some counts. Um, and one of the ways she was unusual um, as a European writer in, in, in North Africa, as a journalist, as a, as a traveler, is that she not only recognized um, the injustices of colonialism, but that she sided wholeheartedly with its subjects, with its victims. I'm gonna read a, a short um, piece from, uh, from Desert Soul. Um, In the course of my peregrinations, she writes, I have noticed once again how truly hollow are the beautiful ringing phrases with which politics decks itself and excuses all its self-interested egotistical intrigues. In fact, don't we read cliches such as these each day? The civilizing and pacifying work of France in Africa, civilization's benefits offered to the indigenous people of our colonies, etc., etc. Incontestably, she goes on, it is in such a manner that all upright France assures itself of its mission in the countries it has conquered or protected, which in fact constitutes the same thing. But alas, the majority of those whom the mother country sends far off to be instruments of the fruitful work of which she dreams do not understand it in this way. In Tunisia in particular, the protectorate is nothing but a euphemism. One born moreover of absolute necessity, concealing a complete annexation. In other words, colonialism um, as a form of uh, invasion. So I said the desert um, cast a spell over Eberhardt, but spell suggests, I think, a kind of transformation when for Eberhardt, um, the experience of the desert was more like a kind of homecoming. Uh, she'd always felt like an exile um, in, in Switzerland, in France. And now finally she'd found somewhere um, that where she could feel, if not at home, then at ease. Um, so I want to go quickly back to those red stained papers in Aix-en-Provence. Um, and they belonged, of course, to Eberhardt. And they were recovered from the ruins of her home um, after she was drowned, aged 27, in a flash flood in Ain Sefra in uh, northeast Algeria in 1904. And the stain is the, the watermark of the flood. Um, and those two facts, the fact that she drowned incongruously in the desert, the fact that she um, preferred to wear traditional male attire, have sometimes as biography often does, overshadowed the extraordinary achievements of her, her writing. So again, I'm delighted that, um, that more of her writing is gonna be available to, um, to the reading public. Um, one final reading. There are exceptional times, very mysteriously privileged moments when certain lands reveal to us through sudden insight, their soul, perhaps even their very essence, Moments when we develop an accurate and unique vision and which months of patient study wouldn't know how to complete or even modify. However, during those furtive instants, the details necessarily escape us and we are only able to perceive the totality of things. So it would be wrong, as you'll have gathered, to call 
Eberhardt, an activist exactly, but it's her recognition of the particularities, um, the uniqueness of both the desert landscape on the one hand, but especially the individuals she met, her friends, her lovers in Algeria, that I think represents um, her, her, if you like, most lasting monument. And it's also her most powerful rejection of um, imperialism. Thank you. Well, that was fantastic. It was a kaleidoscopic introduction to a kaleidoscopic book. And it's a it's a great point that you made earlier about, um, yes, often her biography overshadows her writing and you read a kind of the, the blurb about her will just tell her life story and all the kind of sensational um, points of her life. But she is a, a absolutely kind of indescribable writer, I find just, yeah. Amazing. Um, thank you for that. That was fantastic. And last but not least, um, we're going to go to a very different, very, very different writer, um, very different style and a very different atmosphere that her book creates. And this is Through Kiva to Golden Samarkand by Ella Christie. Caroline Eden um, introduces this book and she was also the one who recommended it, championed it, kind of nagged me about it, nudged me about it until I sort of read it again and realised how good it was. So I'd like to hand over to you, Caroline, to tell us about Ella Christie. Thanks, Nick. And, and thanks uh, to John Murray for giving this, this book a shot. I just, it's been with me for a long time. Um, I shall rattle through a bit because I'm aware we're running out of time. So um, Ella uh, was born just outside of Edinburgh, where I'm dialing into you uh, right now in 1861. And my interest with her um, wasn't so long ago. I mean, it was sort of, I carried her book um, around with me for a long time. Um, but in 2017, uh, they reopened, or they started to, to, to be about to reopen a garden in Clackmannanshire, which is about now north of Edinburgh. Um, and I'd heard about the refurbishment of this Japanese garden uh, where she'd grown up. Um, and Ella had wanted to create this sort of pleasure garden because she'd travelled to Japan in 1907 um, and had enlisted a Japanese team to, to get this uh, garden up and running. Um, and when it was finished in the grounds of Cowden Castle, which gives you some clues about her background, um, it was declared by Japanese horticulturalists to be the best Japanese garden in the Western world. So it was quite a special place. Um, I wanted to see this garden, um, which had made the local newspapers here in Edinburgh, because like me, Ella had travelled extensively through Central Asia, uh, namely for her, Turkmenistan, what is now Uzbekistan, and a little bit of, of Kyrgyzstan and Osh. Um, she set off on two long journeys, one in 1910 and one in 1912. Um, and for many years, I'd carried this book, and it was sort of in this, I'll show you, it was in a very sort of scrappy publication like this. So I'd led a few tours to Uzbekistan. When I had some spare time, I would sit and I would read this book. And um, so that's how I knew about her. Um, and 2017 came along. I heard about this garden reopening and I got in touch with the family. And I said, can I come and see it just before it re reopens? And her great nephew, Robert Christie, um, this gentleman here, uh, said, come for lunch. We'll show you the garden um, with his daughter, Sarah. So had a tour of the garden. It was absolutely incredible. And they explained to me how it had become part of Ella's life. In 1904, Ella's father died. This freed her up um, and gave her some money to travel. Um, at this point, she was already 43. Uh, so she wasn't young when she started to embark on her many years of traveling. And she traveled to Tibet. She traveled to Kashmir, Japan and Malaysia. 
And all of that time spent overseas, she wanted this relaxing garden to come back to. Um, and she wrote about it in a, in a biography that she wrote with her sister called A Long Look at Life by Two Victorians. And in it, it said about the garden, in a sheltered foothold of grassy range of hills that stretch from sunrise to sunset lies the garden of my dreams. It was short-lived, tragically, this garden. Um, three years after Ella's death in 1949, aged 87, Cowden Castle was demolished. Um, and several years later, I think it was in 1963, vandals broke in and completely destroyed and set fire to Ella's garden. So it was lost. But from 2014 to 2018, the family uh, put a fund together and they started to restore it. So on my visit, um, when we were sat around the table having lunch, Robert started to pull out these photographs that Ella had taken with her Kodak camera in 1910 and 1912, of um, mainly of Samarkand and Bukhara, but also the deserts of Turkmenistan and Merv, where she visited. Um, and the photographs really show what the book is about. Uh, they show men selling rice in the bazaar. They show her droshkis, which is the sort of pulled carts that she traveled on. It shows the Oxus um, river that she traveled on by steamer. And what Ella was very good at sort of capturing this, both in her photographs and in her words inside the book. Um, her journeys to Central Asia were undertaken just before she was 50. So again, what strikes me is, you know, imagine she's from quite a grand background as she sets off age nearly 50. I mean, it's quite uncomfortable traveling in the mountains and the steppes of Central Asia now. I can imagine what it must have been like for Ella, but never in the book does she complain. She just gets on with it. Um, and I think that's fascinating, but also what's fascinating, what I sort of sold it into to, with Nick, was that she's so different to the other men who were writing about Central Asia of a similar sort of time. So, you know, Fitzroy MacLean, uh, Peter Hopkirk, men like that. She was not setting out for accolades or for personal glory or to climb mountains or to spy or any of the great game stuff. Ella wanted to go because she was fascinated by these names, Samarkand, Bukhara. She wanted to see them for herself. So really, she was a tourist. And that's what I love about her writing. Um, it's very honest. Um, you know, she was tenacious. She traveled quite hard and fast, but she writes about the everyday. She writes about the domestic. She writes about the cooking, what people are wearing, how they bartered, what they bartered for. And that's the sort of style that I tend to write about in my own way. And I And I think that, you know, that's, what I love about her because she just is something different and it's a woman's voice at that time um and she wasn't grand either she could have been and she wasn't there's this lovely line in the book where she says you know she'd never really been concerned for her personal safety she'd never had anything stolen because perhaps she didn't have anything that was worth stealing so that's Ella and I just think she was she's such an interesting woman who does deserve to be better known and really had fallen off the face I mean I'm very interested in Central Asia and have been for very many years but really people don't know her so uh following on from the lovely reading we started with this is also um a reading set in the bazaars uh it's set late spring so about May when she goes to Bukhara uh Bukharans are obviously great traders as we heard before so she says the bazaars of Bukhara for centuries have been framed throughout the world. To the uninitiated, this represents the trading quarters of the town in which are situated the shops. The streets of the more important ones are arched over and lighted by circular openings in the roof. Miles of tortuous lanes have a covering of poplar or willow sticks upon which are laid sods of turf or reeds or matting, anything to keep out the fierce glare of sunlight, and by those means they are kept delightfully cool. 
To allay the dust, the primitive method is adopted of a man carrying on his back a skin filled with water and from the neck of which he skillfully manipulates the desired spray. Now you see this today, more or less, uh, still in uh, remoter parts of Uzbekistan. Um, carts, carriages and animals of all kinds jostle along to the cries of push, push, which means take care, get out of the way. A necessary warning is the only refuge for foot passengers is a raised step, which is laid along the front of the open shops. Upon this, one can sit and bargain comfortably until perhaps a heavily laden Bactrian camel comes along, threatening to sweep off everything before it. Then a block occurs and unregulated traffic pours in from the side alleys and the high wheeled carts get interlocked and strident voices are upraised and no one will move as each one is determined to maintain every inch of ground gained and time is no object. Paving of any kind is unknown, so in wet weather, with greasy mud to negotiate, there is much difficulty before all obstructions are removed. The various trades have their own localities, all of which lends itself to the universal system of bargaining, without which nothing can be bought or sold. If a deal cannot be effected with one, another is ready at hand, and I never failed to find intense interest taken by the lookers-on, not to speak of help proffered on more than one occasion, and quite impartially. A friend of the seller would implore him not to lose such a chance, and if I walked away, further chaffering would be continued between the two on their own account till a reasonable figure was reached and hands were shaken by all concerned in the purchase. The Russian coinage was recognised was a recognised one, but various misshapen bits of brass and copper were used to change hands. The only native coin of value was the tiller, a small gold coin then worth about 13 shillings. And she goes on and on about the different sections of the bazaar. And she sort of ends describing the lovely knives that Bukhara is still famous for today. Um, she says, Bukhara is famed for its cutlery in the shape of small pointed knives that are universally carried in a wooden or leather case thrust into the girdle. Handles are often elaborately decorated and inlaid with silver and turquoises, and the steel is so finely tempered as seldom to require sharpening. So today in Bukhara, tourists tend to pick up these sort of scissors with lovely elaborate um, sort of shapes of birds' heads, and they're very, very known for their daggers and knives still. Um, but what Nick and I were talking about, you know, another reason why Ella's book is so important is because life changed so much shortly after she was there. So obviously World War I began in 1914, and then we also had the Russian Revolution, and a lot of this was swept away. And she goes into some detail on this in the book as well. But I just love her because she's just such a unique voice. She tells it how it is. And she's a sort of very practical woman. Um, and she she lived a long life and she she wanted to, to, to write these books. But I don't think it would have mattered if she hadn't have written them either. So that's Ella. And I'm, I'm thrilled that she's going to have a new audience. Thank you, Caroline. That was great. Yeah, it's um, she is a unique voice. And I love the kind of steadfastness and the quietness, actually, she writes mm. with. You're right. She's never grand and she's never sensational and she's never dramatic. Um, she's a, just a, a vivid chronicler of, um, yeah. of of place. And as you say, a lot of that was shortly to change and was swept away a few years later. Mm. Or not in the case of these knives that are still sold in the marketplace today. I'm, I'm quite tempted to read a just small paragraph after hearing what Caroline read from Ella's book. Uh, this is the description of, of, of the traffic uh, in Bukhara. And there is a small paragraph where Mustafa Ali is also writing about uh, the traffic in Peshawar, the very <laughs> early part in the book, where he writes that Tonga was moving in Pathan style, 
in our country cars moved in a straight line and people made way for the cars but but in pathan land people walked as they like and cars had to find their own ways through the crowd no point honking or shouting a pathan never made the way for anybody he was independent what was the value of independence if he had to make way for cars and he was ready to pay for the for his independence too if a horse trampled on his foot blooding his toenails he would never abuse the driver or shout or call the police he would look at the driver with an annoyed expression and say can't you see the driver was also an independent pathan he too would stare with his with total disdain and say don't you have eyes end of the story he should move on and it was so fascinating to i mean i did not know about ella and when i i mean i i've got the book of course i'm going to read it uh, and 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 there is so much of similarity the kind of things that ella writes about bukhara and the kind of things i mean the descriptions and the narr- narration that i find in mustafa ali's book from kabul and there is so much of uh, reference to central asia and bukhara because the khan of bukhara was already in in kabul at that time um, and so there this this crossover is so fascinating absolutely thanks nazis yeah that's a lovely passage and yeah i love the crossovers between between these books and it's one of the pleasures of seeing this series take shape is you just get this kind of ecosystem of of connections that just grows and grows and it's it's quite magic to see it all kind of spreading like this um i wanted to ask nazes actually um you, you uh, thank you for bringing this um uh, book in a land from far from home um into english um but i you mentioned the the 100 times you you'd read it and um i wondered if you could say a bit about well about the language um but the challenges of of translation yes the biggest challenge as i mentioned right at the beginning is that his his way of writing uh, the prose um that practically he invented <laughs> so it's it's written in bengali he knew about a dozen language but at the same time he only wrote in his mother tongue which was bengali he never wrote in any other language he could speak farsi he could speak arabic he could speak german french he even translated chekhov from russian to bengali uh, so he was that kind of a scholar uh, that kind of brain he had but he only wrote in bengali so what when he was writing uh, so this this book was his first book which he wrote when he was 44 years old uh, and and by that time he had acquired so much of knowledge he had traveled he has imbibed so much so, so many uh, cultures he had gone into those cultures and so there the, the references in every line or every sentence it would be peppered with uh, words from other languages and there are cultural references uh, so in a way sometimes as i said uh, it's very difficult sometimes um, the readers may be, may feel intimidated it's very um, difficult to penetrate so you have to read it many times to get the essence of it and he his his wit he is wickedly funny this man is when he is mentioning he is writing about when he was nearly dying in kabul when the revolt was uh, taking place and there was absolutely no food and they were dying even at that point the way he is describing uh, you have to laugh basically so and and that was another of his uh, style that every situation he can make it very funny 
even though this is the most difficult of situations that he had to face. And then that is the attraction of his book, of his style. And so when I did it, and, and, and as uh, many people, uh, especially the Bengali readers, uh, they thought that it could not be done. I told them that I'm not translate, translating it for you. You can read it in Bengali. I'm right doing it for others who cannot read Bengali. And, and Mustafali is such a character. He's such a great writer. And I think it, it was our responsibility to, to bring him to a much wider audience, readership. Okay, well, thank you. Yeah, you're right about the humour in that book. It's, um, it's, yeah, it's amazing the wit that he brings to every situation. And it really starts quite, um, you know, quite comedic. And he's kind of sending himself up and it's very self-deprecating and the contrast between the different cultures. And it, it, it's like a book of, of three, three thirds to me. And suddenly the, the final act is, yeah, is, is harrowing in every sense, but is also he maintains this kind of humanity and wit and empathy and compassion. It's a remarkable, remarkable book. Well, maybe that's a good way to end if there are no uh, further comments or questions. And I would like to just reiterate my thanks to everyone who's participated this evening. Um, uh, I hope that we at Stanford's will be able to organize some future events like this and bring people together across continents um, and, um, you know, just be able to have a dialogue of this, this type is fantastic. Uh, if it hadn't been for the pandemic, we would just be stuck in a rut of always having live events in the bookshop. Um, but this is good to be able to bring people together from the far flung corners of the, the earth. So Nick, thank you so, so much um, for uh, being the moderator and everybody else who participated. Thank you very much indeed. I'd also just quickly like to thank Kath Catherine Morris and Caroline Westmore who are here, part of the John Murray's team and Jocasta Hamilton, who isn't here, and Nick Davis, who also isn't here. And also Kate Craigie, who was on the series originally, but has um, handed over to, to, to Catherine. So thank you to everyone that brought this together. And to all you at Stanford's for hosting us and selling these books, the most important thing. I hope you spread them wide and far and recommend them as much as you possibly can. Hope they sell well. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Stanford's Travel Podcast. You can find us at stanfords.co.uk and follow us on social media at Stanford's Travel.